Hello again, friends. Welcome or welcome back to the Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast where we talk big picture. We talk about society, culture, environment, health, all sorts of big conversations and topics. And one thing I really quickly want to touch on is it feels like now more than ever, we are entering and are in this period of dramatic change. I feel that on multiple levels, whether that's societally and things like a shift in the way we're approaching COVID or environmentally a shift to regenerative and life-based systems. But I also very much feel this change and growth on a personal level. You know, I'm going through so much change in my personal life right now, and I know a lot of other people are too. So I just want to share that, you know, I've been doing this podcast for almost 18 months. It's also going to change a little bit too in the near future. I'm going to tweak it, rebrand it a little bit, but most of all, I'm going to shift it to broaden the scope to include more spiritual conversations, more stories of awakening and transformation, because I don't think having conversations about problems and solutions is necessarily what we need in the various crises that we face. I actually think we need more stories of personal awakening and transformation. And when we tell those, we give permission for other people to do the same. So look out for that. I mean, today's conversation is very much, we very much talk about all sorts of big changes that are happening in the world right now and how this is such a pivotal moment, a pivotal period of time in history. So you're going to love this conversation. Of of course, I want to acknowledge that this conversation was recorded on Bundjalung country on a Rockwell land. My guest today shares a beautiful story right up front about his connection and how he was influenced by experiences with Indigenous communities and Indigenous culture. And I just want to acknowledge and pay respects to the First Nations people here in Australia and around the world. Now, today's guest, today's conversation, he is extremely well known. He's an actor and director. He's most well known for his documentaries, That Sugar Film, and of course, 2040, and their associated impact campaigns. And his content is well known. He's given tons of interviews before, so I didn't just want to talk about the content of his films. What I more so wanted to talk about was ask him why he made them. What was his motivation? What did he see in the world where he thought, I need to do this because that can have a positive impact. And where we really get to, what he really elaborates on is the potency, the power of storytelling. And not just the individual stories we tell ourselves, but the collective stories that we believe as society that we essentially blindly follow. You know, the stories of how our society is structured and how we're supposed to live our lives, they're really not that old. It's really a few hundred years that we've been living this way and we just think that it's been forever because that's all we've really seen and been exposed to. So he really talks about how he sees this opportunity for us to tell different stories from a societal level. And when we do that, when we change the stories, we can change the culture. And when we change the culture, we can change the way we live. So it's a beautiful and powerful conversation. We, it's a very wide-ranging conversation. We talk about all sorts of things, right from this idea of us developing carbon tunnel vision and our reductionist societal approach to approaching climate change um, and not looking at the world in a holistic way. 
we talk about the problems of this idea of uninhibited economic growth and how that plays out politically and how politicians are governing out of fear. Uh, we talk about his experiences of awakening and um, with indigenous cultures and also through taking psychedelics. Yeah, we go there. It's very wide-ranging. And of course, we talk about his new film and body of work called Regenerate Australia, which you will no doubt see a lot more about very, very soon. It's very exciting. You're going to love this one. He's a brilliant mind and a very articulate speaker. So please enjoy this conversation with Damon Gamo. Today, so <laughs> yes, we can ramble. Let's do it. All right, well, don't tell me that, I'll take up your whole day. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, Damon, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, thanks for having me. Oh, mate, it's um, I mean, it's it's so nice to connect and talk about these big issues. And you know, I'm also mindful that you're, you're you pop up all over the place, you're very generous of your time to people like me or other podcasts or other talks. Um, so I'm grateful for that. So thank you. And I just, I wonder if that's because you're in the media world yourself and you maybe have been on the other side and you're, you're always interviewing people and getting their perspectives. Is that part of it? Yeah, I think so. And, and also just aware of, um, you know, how urgent we need to get some of these ideas out and get people starting to think a bit differently. And, and, you know, you talk to any psychologists, it's as humans, we, we respond to repetitive messages, you know, so I think sometimes um, it's important. And, and plus I just, yeah, just want, want to share my story and, and, and what we need to do is with as many people as possible and, and hope that it makes a difference in some small way. So, mm. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, the power of, we were just saying before we hit record, the power of intimate conversation and getting out of this media clickbait social media cycle and actually sitting down and having proper conversations about big issues is so important so Mm. thank you for making the time Mm. and yeah so the the premise of the show the the setup the frame up i guess the inspiration is the overview effect this Mm. overwhelming kind of perspective shift that astronauts describe when they go to space and i love that and i love to start with um with that question and ask my guests if you've had a moment in your (laughs) life or a period of time or something in your life that has really dramatically shaped your view of the world and led you to kind of what you do today? Mm. Yeah, I probably had, I've had two, I think. Um, The first was in my early 20s. I had, I was fortunate enough to, I finished drama school because I wanted to be an actor back then. And I, um, one of my first jobs was was a film called The Tracker with with the director Rolf Deheer and it was filmed in Outback, South Australia and, we, and with David Gulpilu, who's a bit of a treasure in this country and um, incredible performer, but just human in general. And during that process, David asked me if I'd like to come and spend time on country once once we'd finished. And so I sort of, I was 24, I think at the time, and just went up to Ramanginning, which is a very small town, um, about three hours flight from Darwin, and um, went and met David there and, and just went completely immersed in his culture for, for three weeks and lived on country, basically slept under the stars, hunted wallaby, caught goanna, um, got to witness a, a ceremony, initiation ceremony, just uh, had this profound um, experience and, and was so welcomed and given dances and access to things that I, I don't I didn't realize at the time how special it was but 
but it really did profoundly shape my worldview and, and deepen um, my sense, not only of, of First Nations culture, but just the connection to nature and how things are perceived and, and a, a non-linear time um, that they had cultivated uh, for so many years. So I'd say that was the first one. Mm. Uh, a, a documentary about him recently, or I watched it in the last year, it was incredible. What an incredible human. Oh, he's, he is a magic man, <clears throat> yeah. And um, oh, I've, I've had some very funny experiences with him and we, we went to the Venice Film Festival as well with that film and it ended up sort of basically minding him for a couple of days and watching him just take that town by storm and swim in canals and charm Sophia Loren and all sorts of people <laughs> like it was such an adventure yeah. so but yeah that that was um that was a profound change although I probably didn't really realize it at the time how profound it was and then uh the other time was probably I had a very deep experience um my wife and I did a, a tour of Peru when we first met I was in my 30s early 30s and and we're actually taken on this sort of shamanic tour of of peru and ecuador um and taken into these incredible places and crystal caves underneath machu picchu and really interesting journey and and, and cultivated in this um ayahuasca uh, ceremony in the amazon over over a period of time and and uh, yeah I, I was shown things there that um have also shifted my perspective on things and the reality of nature and the interconnectedness of things and um that had a deep influence on me as well and, and my wife who was very new to anything like that and and had a profound experience as well mm. you know you're not the first person that i've asked this question of on the show that has had one of their stories has been around some sort of plant medicine or experience <laughs> mm. in terms of some psychedelic or and i know we in our in our western culture we kind of sometimes joke about it or think that it's weird or think that it's um, abnormal or should be kind of hushed but these are natural plants that grow in the dirt or you know grow out in the in the world they've been i tend to think there's nothing capricious in nature you know there's nothing unnecessary in nature they're here for a reason if used correctly and it's just such an such a massive space that's opening up in the world right now yeah, and, and we forget that these are, you know, these were used very carefully by indigenous cultures right around the world, including our own. I mean, there's mm. interesting research. Even the wattle contains a DMT in it, you know, oh, wow. as, as a plant medicine. And and even when we were there in the Amazon, one of the Peruvian men that was with us, you know, had his two 14-year-old kids there doing it, you know. Mm. And and we, we've sort of bastardized it as we do yeah. with a lot of drugs and, and, and misuse it and just do it on, on front, in front of the couch watching, you know, animations and things. But when it's done properly and there's ceremony and intention and we went and met the shaman the day before and talked to him for a couple of hours about what our intention was he then took that uh, intention and as he made the medicine thinking about us in mind and then there was a real ritual before we drank it and then he was right there with us and singing particular songs that have been cult cultivated with certain frequencies so th th there's so much more depth to it than, than people realize and it is a part of many cultures life um, mm. and, and their their rites of passage so if done properly um uh, set and setting i think is the official term then it can be incredibly potent but as with anything it can be misused and 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 the wrong people can get their hands on it and absolutely there can be some deleterious effects but um, thankfully we, we were lucky enough to to really be nurtured through it and, and had a profound experience yeah wow and if it can create these amazing long-lasting changes in our life whether it be connected to nature or you know through healing past traumas that mm. there's studies to show that 
just a few proper proper sessions with these plants can heal mental traumas and depression that people have lived oh. with for decades oh my gosh that's a it game is, changer mate, and all you have to do is if if someone hasn't said i'd encourage someone to have a look at um there's quite really interesting mapping now showing the brain you know in a normal state and then a brain on psilocybin and and how these myriad of neural networks are engaged and opened up which you know anyone who's experienced it understands that feeling that suddenly your capacity to be connected with the world and have new ideas and think differently you know exponentially expands and you can see that in 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 these diagrams so again it's just about being you know aware of how you're doing it and and also i think a lot of people take very very small doses and use it for fun and recreation but you know there is another version where you you do take a considerable amount more but in a very careful Mm. um, setting and that's where you can have your profound life Mm. experiences wow yeah which and it requires reverence and intention, yeah. Yeah, and, and letting go. I mean, I, I must admit, that's, you know, you talk about people having bad trips or bad, that's when the ego just refuses to let go. And, and I go through that every time. And I, I try and do, you know, every couple of years, I'll make sure I do a bit of a, a ceremony again, not necessarily ayahuasca, but even psilocybin, but take enough to, to have a profound experience. And I find the first 15 minutes, I'm, I'm wrestling with myself, <laughs> going, what are you doing? I don't want to do this. I don't want to go, oh, you idiot. What have you done this? And then I just have to say, no, just, uh, you know this, you know this happens, like surrender, stop. And the, and the minute I do let go, that's when all the magic starts to happen and, and you trust that you're going to come back. But, you know, um, for a lot of people, that can be incredibly confronting. It is mm. like a mini death in a lot of ways that are surrendering. Um, and that default mode network, that front part of our ego, we've, we've cultivated it so well. It's like a guard dog that just it doesn't want any intruders and it's not willing to let go. But when you can let it go, that's when you, you access, you know, something mm. far bigger than all of us. And, 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 and I hope more and more people um, take, take, have the courage to give that a go as long as they're, they're doing it carefully. Mm. Wow. Who knew we'd start there? Rabbit hole, hey? Great. <laughs> So I want to ask you about your films, um, particularly that sugar film in 2014. I know you've had a long back career in all sorts of other media as well, but they're two that have really stood out for me personally, and I know that they've been wildly popular. Um, and rather than talk about the content or the specifics of those films, I actually see quite a few links between them in some ways, and I'll get mm. to that. But Firstly, what what did you see? What was your motivation for doing both of them? Because I mean, to just to launch into the realms of health and climate, you know, you, mm. <laughs> you didn't just dip your toe in, did you? What was your motivation for starting those films, doing those films, and what I guess what did you see in the world that you thought these need to these messages need to be put out there? Yeah, so I had um, for those that don't know, I had sort of I'd spent a fair bit of time as an actor, probably ten years, and and lived in London and um, America and had the opportunity to work with some really terrific directors but also felt this sort of um unease at my own contribution i I wasn't telling my stories i was hiding behind other people's stories and that was very easy to do as an actor and you know you get all the trappings of that but you're not really putting your message out there and um i just felt frustrated by that and, and was aware that certain things in the world weren't going the way that i would like for my kids or or whatnot and was also becoming increasingly aware of how potent storytelling was and, mm. and seeing these Hollywood narratives and how they shape our perspectives and views and I think um, sort of narrate a collective story for us and, and, and 
a lot of people might not be aware of that. We all know that there's a story that goes on in our head that we tell ourselves about who we are and that greatly impacts how we interact with other people and it can you know, paralyze you if you're nervous of public speaking or it can make you feel emboldened if you want to do something else. But that story is constantly playing out. But there's also a collective story that we tell and that goes something like you know, that we're all selfish and greedy, um, that nature's you know, great but it's separate from us, it's over there, that our economy has to keep growing at all costs. And we're kind of just living our lives blindly unaware of that, the majority of us. So I started to see that and, and thought that, wow, there's an opportunity here to start telling different stories because ultimately our stories shape the culture and then that culture determines how we exist. Um, and so if you thought of the metaphor, like if humanity is a forest, then the, you know, the people are the seeds, but the culture is the soil. And so the health of that depends on how we grow. And I just thought there was an opportunity here to tell a different story, particularly around sugar and the messages we were getting, the low-fat movement, but also do it in a fun way that you could use all the colour and the madness of the Willy Wonka aesthetic to, to have fun with a, with a film and try and engage people. And then, of course, really saw what impact that had um, not just at the box office, but in terms of schools and curriculums and um, government screenings around the world and the change that it led to. And I thought, wow, this is there's something really interesting in this idea of a, a film with a social impact campaign with it. And so then that just, I guess, um, spurned the idea of, of 2040 and could we do something similar in, in the ecological space or climate space and, and create this impact campaign at the same time so that when people had this emotion at the end, whether it was anger or inspiration, that they could channel that emotion into action instead mm. of letting it dissipate and have the inertia of the system swallow it up and suddenly you're thinking about something else 10 minutes later. In that moment, how do we capture that and then manifest it into direct action? Um, mm. And so I guess um, that's kind of what I'm the most proud of with both films is, is not necessarily the box office or how they've been seen, but what the community has turned that into um which has been really inspiring and, and and motivates every bit of work i do now is like okay stories let's go we're going to tell better ones we're going to link them to action and that's how we can start to create change yeah i think you're absolutely right in calling out i mean the, the power of storytelling and we can talk about that but linking it to that impact campaign you know one of my previous guests on the show was chad and hunter from mm. who did all the BBC Planet Earth stuff. And he called that out and he mentioned you as an example. He said something mm. that the BBC has not done well or he hasn't been able to do, mm. he's felt constricted, is that they haven't been able to after having these overwhelmingly <sighs> successful inspirational movies that because of our strange corporate rules around the BBC isn't allowed to engage or show preference to this charity or this campaign, they're actually not allowed to, or he felt hamstrung by being not able to create actionable campaigns. And so I think that's something that you and your team have done incredibly well around both health and climate. And there are similarities there around, you know, the influence of big food and pharma and big oil that, you know, they, it's very similar across across those two realms and also how the impacts of both overwhelmingly disproportionately affect poorer and underdeveloped and undeserved communities you showed that in that sugar film with the communities that have poor dental hygiene and also in 2040 the impacts of climate change i mean that's um it's it's very interesting to look back on both films and see the impacts 
Yeah, I mean, it depends how, how deep you want to go in this conversation. But yes, uh, the, the, I think both of them acknowledge that um, we have a flawed architecture, like the, the engine of our system um, pushes up these kind of uh, atrocities or, or, or breakdowns and that they're not isolated. And I think people are starting to see that now, whether it is uh, racial injustice or fractured democracies or obesity and metabolic disease or climate change. These things all come from the same place, you know, that we mm. have... Um, created a system that rewards um, largely sociopathic behavior from these corporations or this intense rivalrous game theory that um, pushes all these people to the top that don't have our interests at heart. So um, really, you know, from my experience of baking sugar, you see that these companies realize that if they didn't put particular amounts of sugar in their cereal, um, a rival cereal would take off and sell more. So they were incentivized to put more sugar in and make people sicker because that was what was selling. Exactly the same with fossil fuels, exactly the same with this attention economy that's now you know, on social media. But again, they're all playing within the same parameters of this system that we've created. And unfortunately, addiction is like the best friend of capitalism. So if you can create an addictive product, be it a sugary drink or a Facebook algorithm, you will make the most money, but at the same time, you are destroying the fabric of what it means to be a functioning human society. So, you know, I think that might be, that, that sort of isn't as a radical conversation as it was five years ago. I think people are now really starting to see all that. And especially during COVID, we saw the fragility of a global interconnected system that's so tightly wound for efficiency and extracting every bit of dollar that when we have these big shocks and world events, which we're going to have more of, the system is ill-equipped for that. It's not robust. It's got no slack in it. It's so wound tight that it snaps. And we mm. saw supply chains start to fall everywhere around the world and people couldn't get medications. We saw pigs being euthanized in the US like 600,000 a week in Iowa while they were importing pigs at the same time. Like just chaos. Pesticides that couldn't get to the Middle East or Africa that cause huge locust plagues. Like that is not a functioning solid system for the world that we're living in now. So I think it is pushing up this discussion about, you know, how we move to something better. How do we localize? How do we create more energy sovereignty, food sovereignty, manufacturing sovereignty, all of which we can do now. Mm. But how do we build a more robust economy and a robust society that values community over global transnationals or global governance like how can we actually start to you know empower people in their own regions where they understand the complexity and the nuance of what's going on you know mm -hmm. people want that they want that re-empowerment so um it's an extraordinary time in our totally in is. our history and I, and I you know i feel very lucky i know it's a strange thing to say but i do think future historians will look back at this time as like imagine being alive in 2020 like they had this crazy pandemic yeah. and then they were trying to, you know, transition their entire energy system and their transport and their agriculture and their resources to a circular economy. That was all going on at that time. Like no matter where we go, you know, in the next few decades, it, it, it is a, a remarkable time to be around. Yeah. Know. Yeah. And there are billionaires trying to get into space and then there are people <laughs> trying to localize it. I 100% yeah. agree with you. And, you know, I don't think as far as we know, there's been no other time in human history where or, or i mean history of life on earth as far as we know where a species has been become so aware of its negative impact on its surroundings and its way of living you know so we've we are becoming conscious of how detrimental our way of life is and that's something that yeah i don't think any species has come up against before as far as we know um 
And, you know, she said something before then around it's not such a radical conversation anymore for people to see the linkages between all these things. You know, I think maybe, yes, you're right, in years gone by, we would say, well, this is health and that's a separate thing and this is food and that's a separate thing and this is climate and that's a separate thing. And more and more, we're starting to step back. That's kind of this whole purpose of the show is like that overview effect, how Mm. complex and intricate and the nuance of everything. And one question that I picked up that I wanted to ask you, which is kind of linked to that is, Whilst your films have been wildly successful, there have been, as with all things, elements of criticism. Mm. And some of the stuff that I've seen and read is people kind of questioning the the experts or how rigorous mm. your mm. science is, whether it's having David Avocado Wolf or whether it's having, you know, someone else in 2040. People start to try to, you know, pick the... Uh, try to criticize the work because of the maybe lack of scientific robustness of some of the experts and you have a really interesting concept which you call fact-based dreaming i've heard you talk about that so how do you think that plays into it and our our approach to maybe in the past of being so separate and having to be quite um rigid Hmm. in the way that we view things versus seeing the nuance in how connected things are yeah so um I mean, first I'd say with anything that garners any kind of reach or success, you, you, you get pushed back. Like, yeah. you know, let's not pretend that, you know, there's no unanimous liking of anything. Um, I would say with 2040, I was particularly careful about, especially using that term fact-based streaming. So I would stand by any criticism and, and, and you know, yes, we've got Andrew Bolts of the world have criticised it, but um, that was incredibly thorough and, and did a lot of... Um, test screenings you know which were incredibly confronting for like 50 different you know organizations and groups of people to test the robustness of it to give me that feedback of where my blind spots were and whatnot and as any creative will know that that's a really challenging moment because especially sharing a film that isn't ready that you know hasn't got all the vfx in there it's got a long way to go and Mm. you know people go uh you know i really didn't like this bit or whatnot so i did that with quite a few different groups so that one I feel okay about. Sugar was slightly different in that I was a little bit more naive. I would probably do things a little bit differently. I think what I was trying to do was give a wide array of voices to this topic. So I didn't want it just to be in a sort of more scientific world. I wanted to give the likes of David and others a voice because they had an interesting angle on sugar i thought oh that'd be great like let's just get all the people in the tent and have a chat about it but sort of got my lesson around that of like well no if you're trying to pass this off as something that's quite legitimate and this is what happens to your body on sugar you need to be really careful with who you're bringing in there if you're setting it up as a science thing and i I kind of that's where i could have probably handled a bit better i i never really thought of it as a science project but a lot of people treated it that way and said well you had these doctors monitoring you and you had these things i said yeah fair enough it was it was a sort of an odd kind of side experiment but yeah i i think in hindsight i probably would have toned down some of those people or not given them as much of a voice as i ended up giving but that's you learn those lessons it was my first film i never expected it to to get seen by you know (laughs) you know it's played in 45 countries and i still get people watching it for the first time now so you you never can really understand what this little thing you're going to make might do. And so I think it's important to to learn the lessons from, especially right now, as a creative about what we're putting into the world at a time where there is so much deliberate manipulation. Um, 
I, I would never do that again. Like I would just make sure that, you know, and I do now even this new project, it's super robust. It's mm. carefully checked because I think we have a responsibility as storytellers. We really do. And, and, and in a world where that's been hijacked and manipulated, um, that people are craving authenticity and, 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 and trusted voices. And I think that's a great responsibility. So I, I, I try now and really pride ourselves on that and make sure that whatever's going out um, has gone through a series of lenses, and mm. not just my lens, but you know we've got a, a beautiful young First Nations fellow who started with us now and he fact-checks scripts or he'll call me out on things that I can't see because I just I don't know. And it's been incredibly valuable. So... Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I take that very seriously and um, have a slight little twinge of like, oh, dude, you could have done that a little bit better on sugar, but acknowledge that, that was my learning and, mm. and it has made me do it better now. Mm. It's interesting though um, that we we can't... I, I, I agree with you. There is, a, there is a craving for authenticity and mm. particularly cutting through the um, unbelievable amounts of information out there. But isn't it weird that we, 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 I think, sometimes can overstep the mark and we're not, we're not leaving much space for nuanced conversation these days. Do you know, it's like this, this person or this um, authority organizational figure says this, so that's it. There's no element for conversation or debate. And this is what I worry about. And there's, I mean, even look, uh, looking at carbon emissions, you know, we've got COP26 going on right now. Obviously, massive talks around net zero. Australia's just set a net zero plan, although you could argue the robustness of that. Um, but I, I also worry that we're developing, like, carbon tunnel vision and just focusing on the carbon numbers. And I could actually envisage a 2040 or 2050 where we've achieved net zero, but we're still destroying the oceans. We're still cutting down timber. We're still open-cut mining. We're still coal seam gas fracking. But we've hit the number. Right, and so by us kind of outsourcing our authority and our trust to massive organisations that say this is the truth and this is how you do it, there leaves this door open for, or, or it doesn't leave the door open for nuanced debate and you know just mm-hmm. kind of like gut feel and intuition as well, right? Are you seeing that in in your work? I mean, you must be exposed to enormous amounts of science and mm-hmm. environmental organisations and stuff going on. Do you think that there's a risk that we're kind of going down this? rigid uh what would i say rigid um working in silos kind of road a little bit yeah so there's 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 two questions you've asked there the first one is that um around the nuance and the room for complexity and the room for fallibility which i think is one of the most dangerous things we're dealing with right now is there's a sort of a an emergent sanctimonious um tone that has become acceptable which says even if someone has has built up some trust and we really like what they do if they say one thing wrong they're gone Mm. and we've written them off yeah and and that's incredibly dangerous because we have to be able to learn and we have to be able to see our blind spots and improve as human beings that's just who we are and we're all fallible we all make horrible mistakes that's how we grow and become better so if we rule that out and we start inhibiting that in a major way we're, we're in real trouble you know, because we won't get the nuance you're talking about or the depth of conversation and cultural learning that's required. Um, and I say that as someone who's just been through that myself with a recent project I've done and did some screenings afterwards for a whole group of, of, of mob and First Nations people and really asked for direct feedback and, and was equally gobsmacked and inspired by what came back my way. 
about how how ignorant I am on certain things. And I was thinking I was doing something right and I was, you know, pursuing all the best channels, but then actually to consult the people, you know, and, and hear, no, no, you missed the mark by a long way here, even further here, even though you were trying to do well. So if they just written me off and said, no, you're a joke, what a horrible outcome. But yeah. they, they actually had the grace to say, no, no, we'd like to help you improve and, and let's do this together. That to me is a functioning society. That's how we get to a better place. Um, to your second point, which I think is really great, and I think this is why, especially in 2040, I, I tried to use Kate Rayworth's donut as the central element of the piece, was that you're absolutely right. We cannot approach this with the reductionist mindset that we've that's got us into this mess in the first place, mm. which is all focused on carbon and says, you know what, we can just build these big carbon capture machines or we'll suck it out of the atmosphere or we'll do these huge geoengineering projects. That's actually not going to get us through it. And, and this is why we really... Pers- I'm pursuing this idea of a regeneration movement is that to me, the regeneration of our ecosystems and our social systems is the only authentic way we can solve climate. You know, there's no other way to deal with it because you're right. Even if we hit net zero in 2050 and we've got massive levels of income inequality, we've still got racial injustice. We're still destroying the biodiversity. That's not a world that any of us want for our children anyway. Mm. So we actually have to reframe this whole thing. And it's, that's the biggest challenge really um, is to see it as all holistic and all deeply connected. And the cl- climate change is feedback from the planet about our system. Yep. In the same way that you get feedback when you feel a fever and you go to the doctor and you go, oh, okay, what can I change? Well, I've got to cut down the ciggies, I've got to run more, I've got to eat healthier food. You listen to that feedback and you adjust. We are not listening to the feedback right now. We're going, no, we can continue growing. We can continue what we're doing, but we'll just switch to cleaner energy and we'll just have a lot more solar panels and EVs. Like that doesn't get us anywhere near where we've got to go. So again, this is the dirty word that no one wants to talk about. No government wants to discuss because it knocks them out of office. But this idea of this exponential growth, that we have this system that is consuming the living world every day, but it's on track to being double its size in 2041 and seven times bigger in 2100. Like think of the economy right now and the deforestation, the plastic and erosion and the wiping out of species seven times bigger is a complete suicide mission. So that's the, the fundamental, this is this engine, the flawed architecture we've got to come back to. What is a new measurement that we can start discussing that isn't just this limited reductionist, um, you know, civilization built on wealth Let's build a civilization based on valuing life and how we measure that and embrace all these indigenous concepts of more circular thinking. So again, we've, we've posed this idea in the, news, in the new film of a news report in 2030 that's like a, a big circle that has where we've crossed our boundaries on chemical use, on, on water use, on emissions, on the housing crisis, on health. And we're actually measuring where they're sitting and are we coming back into the safe zone of that green in the middle or are we continuing to... To completely decimate that so to me those metrics are what we need to introduce into society because what we measure people will strive for and right now it's capital and it's only capital yeah but once we start actually measuring all these other elements they'll be more visible and people will care about them and we can you know replace advertising billboards with metrics throughout our cities and our towns that tell us about our water consumption or how much energy we're using we make the invisible visible and that shifts behavior because suddenly it's in our consciousness and we're aware of it yeah i think we've got this focus on yes you're right this focus on uninterrupted endless growth which is ridiculous um and and what politician wants to get up there and say whoa whoa, whoa, hey guys we need to kind of degrow here 
yeah. they're not going to get elected. <laughs> that's exactly. the worst policy. That's the worst platform campa- uh, campaign platform ever. But the also, I just add that the, the also the other argument there is that we have to keep growing because we're lifting these poorer nations out of poverty. But when you actually look at the data, you know, we still have four and a half billion people living under seven dollars a day. Mm-hmm. Like that's despite all our growth in the last thirty years. That only five percent of that wealth has made it to the bottom poorest sixty percent. The yeah. majority of that wealth has stayed. In the wealthiest 40% oh, around the world. It's actually gotten worse. It's gotten much worse. So it's way not worse. that money isn't making its way down to the people that need to see it. It's staying in the wealthier natures, nations and creating bigger gaps, even within countries like our own country, like the US. Those gaps are just ridiculous now. You have someone like Jeff Bezos earning worth $140 billion. Mm. You know, while the average Americans, you know, earning about 35000 a year and struggling yeah. and three jobs. You know, it's just a disgrace. So you're right. What's the point of fixing climate change if that's still going on and we have these really wealthy citizens living in gated communities while the rest of the world is scrambling and fighting for resources? That is also a dystopia. Yeah. (laughs) So we need to just address all of these things simultaneously. 100%. Absolutely 100%. We've got this massive need for endless growth, this massive wealth inequality, and with that, baked into that, is this... um, I guess, disempowerment, erosion, yeah, disempowerment of individuals and communities. And, and the flip side to that, I guess, is that you've got all the businesses, all the poli- politicians, all the governments kind of getting up there and saying, we'll solve this issue with this piece of technology. You know, ScoMo's up there saying, climate change is a technological problem. We're going to fix it with technology. We've got, you could argue that recycling, I had a conversation with Kate Nelson about this and she was telling me the history of the recycling industry, how it was started essentially by plastics manufacturers to say, don't worry about single use, just chuck it in the yellow bin and we'll keep America beautiful. We'll look after it for you. Uh, You could argue the same with, you know, pharmaceuticals as a band aid for poor health. You could argue that renewables, you touched on it before, just by shifting from fossil fuels to renewables. We're not changing our high energy lifestyles and societies. We're just shifting it from one to the other. Um, Fertilisers, you could say the same thing with all these industries, how they're just a band-aid for poor soil health. So really what we're getting to here is it's behaviour change that is required. And no politicians and no businesses are getting up there and saying, hey, you guys need to change and I'll help you do it. They're all Mm -hmm. saying, you guys, don't you change. I'll look after it. Vote for me. We'll do this. Mm -hmm. You guys can keep living the way you're living. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the power of storytelling is that it's and and your work is that it's actually not only educating and allowing behavior change but empowering people to want to make change as well Mm. they can be part of the programs after your after your documentaries they can engage and they can actually do something i think that's really critical and really important and something that's really lacking in our society today yeah yeah it is it's um it's sort of that deeper layer which um you know, we talked about briefly before, but this idea of, of how we shape culture and that stories have always shaped culture and that the story we tell now about our world and how we interact and who we are as humans and our connection to the living world is a very new story. Like pre-sort of scientific revolution or, or and particularly sort of, you know, Christianity it started, but most cultures around the world were, were animist cultures and they believed that you know, a, a current of life existed through all living things and was deeply connected. You know, especially you look at the ancient Chinese, our own indigenous culture. They had very different metaphors for how they interacted with the world. The Chinese referred to themselves as reverent guests of the land mm. or our own culture were, were custodians. And there's a beautiful example of, I love this story of this Admiral Zheng who uh, about 50 years before Christopher Columbus sailed around the world. No one knows this story. 
um, with 27,000 men on 300 ships. And we don't know about him because he didn't go and, you know, conquer lands and destroy people. They went and exchanged gifts and took back, you know, giraffes and elephants back to China and, and shared trinkets and jewelry. And just, it was a celebration of life on the planet. And then you get Columbus 50 years later doing the exact opposite and saying, hey, you know, we found all these people and I think they'd be really amenable to slavery. We could probably get them to do whatever we like and we, they killed them and beat them. And that sort of Western European lens sort of began there. And then we get to the scientific revolution. You've got people like Bacon and, and, and Descartes suddenly saying, no, we are superior to nature. Nature is something we must hound and put her in constraints. That suddenly this schism starts to happen. And this entire new story of us and the living world starts to form. It coincides with capitalism, which just loves that idea because if we're separate to nature, we can commodify it. A tree can be just reduced to bits of four by two and we can sell it. There's no life in it. Who cares? So suddenly this story emerged. But that's not that old, that story. So now we have this opportunity and I would say we have to desperately start telling a new one. What does it mean to be human and how we treat each other? What does it mean to be a human and interact with the living world? And the science, the biology that it's emerging now is so beautiful because it's telling us about the interconnection of trees, sharing mm. nutrients across species, um, even animals and how they interact with, with that ecosystem and keep it alive. But we are part of that. And the more we can see ourselves as part of that, we will have a new reverence and meaning for the living world. So we will struggle to just tear it down and extract it. And if we can teach that to our children, then that knowledge will be passed on. And suddenly we start to change things in the generations ahead because we have a new um, connection to the living world. So I feel like we've just gone off track for five, 600 years or so. Yeah. And now there's an opportunity or there's something emerging where people uh, are starting to understand that and they're learning about, you know, even the, the bacteria that's released in a plant that benefits their own well-being. People are, are putting ferns behind their bed because they have a certain property that heals them when they sleep. Like all this magic is starting to come through that I do have a glimmer of hope that we might be moving towards an ecological civilization and it might be really destructive and we might have to have elements of collapse before we get there but in the next 100 or 150 years we've got a chance of, of creating that because i just speak to enough people or these kids that are coming through that that something's happening and mm. if it's going to be fast enough no one knows we're definitely going to go through some level of turmoil because we haven't acted fast enough people are already dying and they will continue to die uh, and we have effects of climate change that are going to run away now um, but as that decays and falls down there's a chance to be building something simultaneously and and that's what my work is and lots of people i connect with now and i feel like there's more and more people your podcast i'm sure the people you're talking to there's this something happening yeah there's a bubbling and a brewing and again that's why i think we should have a little bit of excitement amongst all the terror the peril and the possibility should be something we dance with simultaneously because we could create something very special out of this moment mm, beautiful you're 100% right. You know, I grew, up in, I grew up in North Carolina in America and I remember getting taught in history. I didn't learn anything about the Native American tribes. I didn't learn anything about the pre-colonial history, but I did learn the, and I still know off by heart, the, the names of the ships that Columbus travelled on. I got taught all that kind of history. I can tell you, the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria. Why do I know that? Because I was taught that as part of America. I was taught that that was what was important and that was what we needed to know. And what you're doing and what you're talking about 
is we can change the story, we can change the perspective on history, and it doesn't take very long. It takes a generation. And one of my questions I was going to ask you, and I think you've answered it, is that your work is very inclusive of kids and is very focused on getting into schools and getting into curriculum programs and getting involved with kids. Mm. And is that the reason why? Have you seen that and seen that there's a, a door open there for us to really change that narrative? 100%, man. And, and yeah, there's a great quote by Frederick Douglass, who was one of the abolitionists, and he said something like, um, you know, it's a lot easier to educate and empower children than it is to repair broken men. You know, mm. and so that so many of our generation have already been indoctrinated with stories, whether that's around their own health or the climate or whatnot, you know, and, and within that people are changing. But as we know, ideas get rusted on, we get more conservative uh, generally as we get older. But we've just got these kids coming through that are so wide eyed, so deeply already connected to intrinsically to the living world and to each other, that if we can nurture that, I really think that our teachers and our parents they play the most crucial role right now because what are the new stories we're giving these kids? And um, especially at a time where a lot of these kids are feeling deep anxiety about their future, understandably, how do we sort of balance that by saying, well, if we do pull this off, there are these incredible careers that are going to need to be developed. Here's what you could be working in. Imagine being a seaweed engineer that's like mm. planting these giant kelp forests out at sea and sequestering carbon and bringing back marine life. Or imagine you're creating these decentralized net energy networks. Like, the kids love it. They get so excited because suddenly there's a, a glimmer of hope and something tangible that they might be able to grab onto. And, and we've had over 2 million kids now in Australia have been taught the 2040 curriculum materials. Wow. And I can't tell you how rewarding it is to be sent things regularly of classroom projects, of brainstorming ideas, these ridiculously eloquent, eloquent kids at 10 to 15 that are already coming up with ideas because we've sparked creativity in them. And that's what we have to do instead of overwhelming them with the dystopian narratives, which is incredibly dangerous. Um, they need to understand that, yes, there's challenges ahead and they need to be equipped for that and we need to be teaching them resilience and all sorts of other skills that we're not right now. But we also need to be making sure that we're saying there are things we can do. And if we all do them, we could create this incredible world together and you could be a part of that. So... Um, yeah, I, I deliberately make sure that the, the films are, are, are child-friendly. And I also think that when you when you aim for a child sometimes and, and talk in their language and it's playful and it can be fun, adults secretly like that as well sometimes. I mean, mm. I don't think anyone really enjoys sitting through a dire dystopian climate change film on a Tuesday night after work for yeah. an hour and a half. In fact, <laughs> a lot of people aren't watching them for that reason because we don't – we watch the news. We hear have conversations. I don't want to see how the reef's dying. Like – I kind of know that. Do I need to know the complexity of it? Um, so those films are important, but we need to make sure that we're also um, being more strategic with how we tell stories, engaging people, bringing them in, making it a, a fun educational experience. I guess that's what I try and do is 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 try and teach people something, but also make it a, a, an interesting and, and a beautiful experience. So we use lots of VFX so that it feels a bit magical and special and it's a bit heightened from, mm. from what they normally see. And kids love that. You yeah. Know? So, um, yeah, they, they, they are our best chance, I really think. And, and they're already so switched on to this stuff that we just got to keep giving them the right ideas. Yeah. And it starts with that connection to nature, connection to community and behaviour change from those very early years. Because like you said earlier, climate change is a symptom. It's feedback. 
you know so we're not going out there saying kids you need to fix climate change <laughs> we're saying kids learn to love nature learn to connect exactly. with your community you can't fix who can fix climate change no it's <laughs> ridiculous and again you know even this idea of fighting climate change it's that same reductionist separate yeah. mindset it's yeah. like there was a beautiful um quote i think at paris which was says like we're not fighting cl- climate change we are nature defending itself it, it it's a such a different mm-hmm. way of looking at it if we're fighting it it's different to us it's yes. it's a battle and it's nature no no we are nature why would we fight ourselves we want to work to regenerate we want to regenerate ourselves and regenerate the world around us and again you know reading some of this history around i don't think people really understand what what we've lost and how beautiful it could be that i think the stats are since our civilization we've we've destroyed about 80 percent of of mammals 83 percent of marine life 50 percent of plant species and even reading some of these early testimonials of you know even columbus's time um some of the sailors saying we couldn't get into the Bahamas because of all the tur- tur- the amount of turtle shells smashing the boat. We had to wait to get into the harbour. Wow. Or Francis Drake, who, who moved across the US, reported 40 miles of seaweed of kelp forests off the coast full of otters and seals. Um, there's a report of a Welsh writer in the 16th century um, saying these um, um, herring schools of fish that were six miles long and they made the ocean black and just bubbling with life. Like this is what regeneration is is Mm. getting back that amount of life and vibrancy and putting life at the center of our decisions that we make because we're living in a world that's probably a 20 percent world of what what we had it's like watching tv with the dimmer down (laughs) and it's on 20 percent brightness imagine turning it up again and seeing the full vibrancy and color of what's on offer and that's i guess what regeneration is about how do we get some of that thriving life Mm. back because we all feel better and we all that's us. We're connected to that. So it intrinsically makes us feel happier when that's around. Totally. I think this is the big shift for from from sustainability to regeneration that we're seeing, you know, from, to make a broad sweeping generalization. But this this reconnection to nature. Um, one of my previous guests, Ollie Costello from Firesticks, mm. talked mm. about exactly the same thing that you've said around fighting climate change, is it around fighting fire. This idea that we is like we don't fight fire. Fire is nature. Fire is country. If we say we're going to fight it, we're separate to it. Exactly the same mm. as the way you're talking. Mm. And for me, the difference that I'm seeing with regeneration, which is regenerative agriculture, which is regenerative communities, etc., is not solution necessarily tech or solutions focused. It's behavior change. It's terrain theory. It's instead of us going, well, let's change the actions. It's going, well, how do we create the conditions from which life can occur mm. and is this, this is my segue to to, to re- your new film regenerate australia can you tell me a bit about that its purpose and where it's mm. at and what you're aiming to achieve with that yeah i, I just love what you said then before because i think um yeah sustainability is a nice target mm. but regeneration has much more of an action verb doing element to it you can regenerate it's very hard to sustain like it's a different energy mm. to it so um, yeah, this idea of regenerating Australia, which is the new film, it, it started about 18 months ago, just as the fires were ending and, and um, WWF reached out to us um, and some other groups and said, look, you know, we've obviously got a lot of money that's come in. We want to do something really meaningful. We're really interested in this story element. Like, how do we change the story? And so we spent uh, about four months consulting um, different Australians in, in different parts of the country, bushfire-affected communities, conservative farmers, indigenous groups, um, tradies, inner-city people, and basically just found out how they were going, but then also said, you know, if we get through this, what kind of country do you want to see? Like, what sort of changes do you want to see in, in, in the country? 
And so what I've done is crafted, based on that narrative, crafted this vision of Australia in 2030, but it's set as a, again, trying to use story, trying to think of ways that we could reduce right down to the most relatable ways that people will, will digest information. And so I'd, I've done it as a news report set in 2030 that's looking back at the decade that was of the mm. 2020s and this decade of regeneration and used like Kerry O'Brien and Sandra Sully and Mike Tomolaris and Georgie, all these well-known journalists whose voices people have heard in their living rooms all the time, but they're saying these amazing announcements or doing this news reading. And then we've recreated press conferences and we've done and these interviews with people saying, you know, what's it like, you know, that these, these whole industries have come to your town and your community is reinvigorated. And it was so spectacular to see people sit in that space. And I'd say to them, imagine it's 2027 and your community's back because you've had this huge, you know, renewable energy zone here. All these people are choosing to live in the city. People were like getting so emotional mm. because they want that Australia. They want to live in that space. Or we had a, you know, announcement of an Indigenous voice to Parliament and the celebration that took off around the country. And people just like, I had Aboriginal people crying, just even imagining that. Mm. And so the idea is to is to is to get people to imagine and feel what it would like to to be like to live in this country in 2030, but then like 2040 we've, we're building a sort of extensive impact campaign. But the difference now is that we have this multi-million dollar fund, which is a grant for any community that sees a solution in the film that they like. There's the money to start it. Go and get the feasibility study to to try a community battery. You want to do something around your governance? Here you go. Here's an urban food project. We've got these grants to give to communities, so they don't have to wait for their council. They have to wait for an investor or, or any other um, anyone else to start. They can do it. And then there's an army of sort of impact investors that are ready to go if something takes off. They will come in and scale it up and back it up. So it feels like all the learnings we've got from Sugar and 2040 were able to put into this to craft you know, a really meaningful discussion for the country. Mm. And again, it's not my vision. I've just helped curate what the people of Australia have asked for. And and I think people are going to be shocked at how much we have in common. Even though our, our news outlets and our algorithms tell us differently. You know, there's people in this film, conservative farmers talking about listening to Indigenous wisdom because they know this land. Mm. They're talking about I want greener hills again and clean rivers. They're not saying climate change or they're not saying all the buzzwords but they're still feeling at that human level that they want that abundance of nature back again. So um, it, it's been a real privilege to put it together, to be honest. And, and we've just started screening it um, in the last couple of weeks just to different groups and the response has been really beautiful. So I do feel there's a really nice moment for it. I feel like, yep. um, you know, we were supposed to release it now in October, but we just felt that people are still dealing with COVID. It's still a bit traumatic that we're slowly emerging from our little cocoons that with a summer, with some interaction, people might be actually open to starting to dream and think about where we're going. Um, and because most people aren't happy with where we're going. Yeah. You know, in fact, nearly everyone was, to be honest. Um, and it wasn't just one side of politics. It was po the political system in general is completely broken in terms of its trust. Um, that community was probably the number one word that came up in our interviews with all the Australians was that word was mentioned the most. Mm. I want an empowered community again. I want our community thriving again. You know, we want more money for sports clubs or ways to connect face-to-face -face again. Mm. So that's something we can share across any political spectrum. And, and they do want um, a healthier environment, you know, even if they say it differently. So great. What a terrific foundation mm. to build a recovery on. A community-led recovery, getting the nature back on track uh, and empowering people with their voices in their region. I mean... 
gosh, that's something we can all agree on. So um, it'll be very interesting to see how it goes. And again, it's an experiment. It's a it's a risk in sort of, you know, trying to tell a different story and, and shape the narrative in a different way that people aren't used to. But I'm hoping that once people see, you know, the likes of Kerry and these familiar faces reading these things they might not have heard of mm. before, they might feel like, oh, okay, there's something interesting in this. The door of possibilities yeah. might open. And, yeah. you know, there's something really powerful in the... Um, you can look back at the kind of... They were quite popular in the 90s, like the law of attraction, like the secret, and the, this idea... Think and grow <laughs> yeah. rich, or he was before Napoleon Hill, but this idea that acting as if, trying to project what you want into the future and then acting as if it's already happened or trying to project a behavior or... a who you are and acting as if you are that person there's something really powerful in yeah. the psyche of doing that and that's i think what you've ta- you're talking about tapping into people becoming emotional when they enter that space acting as if this has happened is actually quite a powerful psyche in our psyche man. And, and it's so funny isn't it because we I, I feel like because we're so bombarded with content now and we're all listening to podcasts in our ears or music, whatnot, we've actually forgotten how to dream and we've forgotten how to imagine. We're outsourcing our imaginations and we're getting people telling us what we should be doing. And we don't actually stop and mm. go, actually, what do I want? And that really suits corporations and governments because they're crafting 2040 or 2030 right now in their plans. And we forget that we can do it too. So I think that's what I've got is people got really emotional because they thought, gosh, I've never even considered what yeah. I want. Or I sometimes do an exercise with people where it's like, okay, it's 2030. We're going to walk out, close your eyes. We're going to walk out your front door. And what are you seeing? And what are you smelling? And they just get really emotional because they've never done that. It's like, what do you actually want? Like, so I, I, I do think there's validity in this, whether it's the quite the level of, of the secret <laughs> or not. But, but, you know, any organization yeah. does mission statements and goals and, and visions for where they're headed. We, we just don't do it collectively, which is crazy. Yeah. And we used to have bold leaders that did that. You know, politicians used to pride themselves on, on big visions for the future. But now it seems it's about protectionism and we'll be scared of those people and they'll come and get your wealth and, and those people can't be trusted. And they, they, they govern on fear. Mm. So there's a huge gap for shared visions, yeah. you know, and getting excited and I think people are craving it. So certainly got that in 2040. So it'd be very interesting to see see how this one gets received. And if nothing else, it's going to have some terrific discussions and robust discussions, mm. um, which I think we need to do as well. So so the, the plan is to tour. We're doing 60 towns in February and March next year and communities and, and inviting people to come out and let's talk about our future. What did you resonate with in the film? What could be different? But then what do you want to do as a community? What do you want to apply for? Because the money's there. What, what do you want to get going on? Like... You know, we're going to provide toolkits to facilitate that, so people can actually come together and 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 try and craft a a vision for themselves. Mm. Mm. I love it. Mm. I love it, Damon. It sounds amazing. I can't wait to to see it um, and participate whenever the community section rolls through this part of the woods. So, mate, I just want to say thank you not only for your time and the discussion, but you know, for for the work that you're doing. You know, you've really if you've really found a sweet spot and it's really come from a place of authenticity of this is my purpose or this is what my my gifts and experience that i can give to the world are so that's very much shining through so thank you thanks mate and thank you for for what you do i mean again you are part of the storytellers as well and trying to shape and shift and tell a new story and contribute to culture so um huge thanks for what you do as well awesome thanks man <laughs> How good very good man that was lovely who knew we'd even start with mushrooms and end with the secret? But isn't that... <laughs>
Isn't that lovely though? <laughs> but that's just, yeah. Again, these, these things.